All right, I think I will be good to go. So today's passage or account is on Judah and Tamar. Uh, it's a tragic evil, but there's hidden redemption in the story. As you guys just saw that skit, it was a satire about how current society might interact or might interpret the Judah and Tamar account. Uh, but it does wrestle with today's accounts and today's story. And it raises similar questions like last week, such as, God, where are you? If you were here last week, that's the one question I wanted us to wrestle with. God, where are you in the Joseph story? And this week as well, it doesn't get much better. We're also left asking the question, God, there's so much evil in today's world. God, where are you? And um, this morning, some of you guys may have woken up, um, saw the news of another a mass shooting, and it just feels like there's so much evil in today's world. And this is whole 2020, 2021, you might be asking, God, where are you? God, there's so much evil. How can there be any good born from this evil? How can you turn all this evil into good? <clears throat> and so this passage will um, wrestle with that very same question. And so today, um, we're not continuing in the story of Joseph. He's on his way to Egypt to be sold uh, into the house of Potiphar. But the story takes us, at first it seems random, but to the story of Judah and Tamar. And so uh, I'm going to explain later on why it's important. It's not just a random, oh, I'm just going to insert the story here. It plays a role um, in the whole story of Genesis and in the Bible. And so today we're going to focus on the character, character of Judah. Uh, if you remember him from last week, he was the guy who suggested to sell Joseph um, instead of killing him. And so if you remember my drawing from last week, he's the one, um, instead of killing him, he said, hey, why don't we just sell him? Let's make some money. Um, and so today's passage, we're going to see Judah at his absolute worst. We're going to see him do some wicked things. But despite all of that, we see God's grace and his plan working even in the midst of death and wickedness. So it'll be the same format as uh, last time. Um, I'm going to explain the biblical narrative. So I'll go through that first. And afterwards, I'll draw out theolog theological insights um, and focus on a couple things. So uh, that's what I'll be focusing on. And I want to give some uh, tips for interpreting narrative today, kind of how I did uh, last week. So um, tips to understanding narrative. Uh, I just have two. One is Narratives, they record what happened, not necessarily what should have happened. So as a result, not every narrative has a clear moral application. In today's story, we're going to see evil, but you're not going to see the narrative, the narrator pause and say, okay, just let you know, um, you shouldn't do that. You're not going to see that from the narrator. Um, a lot of times in the Old Testament literature, the narrator records what happens and allows you to make the interpretation based on what God has said in other parts of scripture. Uh, secondly, narratives may teach expli explicitly by clearly stating something or implicitly by clearly implying something without actually stating it. Um, so an explicit example, really easy one is trust in the Lord. That's a very explicit command. Um, but an implicit example could be next week when uh, Joseph flees from Potiphar's wife. It doesn't say, talk about lust at all, but that's an implicit example of, oh, that's a good thing that Joseph did. 
So hopefully that that's helpful. And this is taken from Fiend Stewart's How to Read the Bible for All It's Worth. So with these two things in mind, I want to jump into the story. So if you have your Bibles, please turn to Genesis uh, 38. I won't have the verses on the slide today. There's a lot of verses in these uh, chapters. So please uh, follow along with, with your Bible. It will really help for today's, uh, today's narrative. Um, so Genesis chapter 38. I'll give you guys a moment to get there. All right, so similar to last time, we'll take it apart a little bit at a time, um, just for some context before we start reading. At this point, as Joseph is going down to Egypt, Judah also splits from his brothers, and he does his own thing in another land and hangs out with uh, the Canaanites, which is not the best sign because we know God forbids them from marrying um, Canaanites. So with that in mind, let's read verses uh, one to five. Let's see what Judah is up to. It happened in that time that Judah went down from his brothers and turned aside to a certain Adulamite whose name was Hira. There, Judah saw the daughter of a certain Canaanite whose name was Shua. He took her and went into her, and she conceived and bore a son, and he called his name Er. She conceived again and bore a son, and she called his name Onan. Yet again, she bore a son, and she called his name Shelah. Judah was in Shezib. When she bore him. All right, so Judah departs from the rest of his family, does his own thing. He has uh, three sons with this Canaanite woman, and these sons are not good. They are evil in the eyes of God. And so I have a, and a sketch to uh, possibly portray what this might have looked like. Um, imagine Jacob's getting a postcard from Judah, and it's just three messed up kids. Um, and so in this phrase, you kind of see, uh, the very first sentence in verse one, it says it happened that time. And so we know that that means while Joseph is on his way to Egypt, Judah is on his way, uh, to Canaan. He's up to no good. He makes friends with an Adulamite. Um, and, uh, Adulamite is someone from Adulam, which is a Canaanite town. As I said earlier, Israelites, they weren't really supposed to mingle with outsiders. So Judah, he's kind of involving himself in the wrong crowd. It's like when your mom or dad says, hey, don't hang out with so-and-so. They're a bad influence. That's essentially what God is telling uh, the Israelites about Canaanites. Don't hang out with them. They're a bad influence. But yet Judah goes and marries a Canaanite and has three sons. And so Judah is just living the life on the edge. And he has three evil sons. So I try to draw them. Um, with some slanted eyebrows to make them look uh, wicked. Um, so Judah's already gone off, the, gone off on the deep end, but it gets a bit worse. So let's see what happens in verses six and seven. Verse six says, And Judah took a wife for Er, his firstborn, and her name was Tamar. But Er, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord put him to death. It's kind of funny that Moses, the author of Genesis, introduces Er and the very next sentence kills him off. There's not, there's no character development from Er. Um, but we do know that Er and Tamar get married. That is uh, what happens in the custom of arranged marriages. And you have Judah here, the happy father-in-law, uh, or the father of, 
of air, but the very next sentence, God puts air to death. Uh, it doesn't say why, it doesn't say how. Um, so I just, you know, use some artistic imagination that he was just struck dead by thunder. Um, and so now we have a problem. Now Tamar has no husband. And so this requires the help of their fellow family members, um, the brother of heir, Onan. So let's see what Judah says to Onan in verse eight. Then Judah said to Onan, go into your brother's wife and perform the duty of a brother-in-law to her and raise up offspring for your brother. So some context is needed. What is the duty of a brother-in-law? Uh, back then in a, in a marriage, according to Deuteronomy 25, if your brother's wife dies, the duty of a brother-in-law is to have sexual relations with your sister-in-law. And your first reaction might be, that's gross. <laughs> Why would I do that? Well, it's for the purpose of giving your sister-in-law offspring so that she could carry on the name of your dead brother so that his name wouldn't be forgotten in Israelite history. Um, so the main reason or one huge reason is to prolong the family name. But another huge reason is that it protects the widow. It protects Tamar physically, financially, and just her overall well-being. The husbands protected um, their wives. So from Tamar's perspective, uh, she's a wife, her husband dies. She was obligated to marry within the family of Judah, starting with uh, her husband's brother, which would be uh, Onan. And uh, for Tamar, she can't just go marry a random guy and have kids. That would kind of go against the, uh, the law from Deuteronomy and it would reflect poorly on the household of Judah. On the other hand, if Onan, if he refused to carry out the family obligation, he himself would suffer public humiliation. Um, but Onan, remember, he's evil too. He doesn't really want to do this. And so um, my next sketch um, offers, portrays a, um, an angry Onan. He, he doesn't really want to carry the duty of a brother-in-law. And so uh, let, let's look at verses 9 to 10, and I'll kind of explain why. Verse 9. But Onan knew that the offspring would not be his. So whenever he went to his brother's wife, he'd waste the semen on the ground so as not to give offspring to his brother. And what he did was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and he put him to death also. So Onan is also very wicked. Uh, we'll stop there in, in reading. So Onan, he refuses to carry out the family obligation. Well, why is that? Why is it so bad to help out uh, your sister-in-law and help carry on uh, the family name? Now, I want you to see selfishness coming into play here. Remember, heir is the firstborn son, so he gets um, the full family inheritance. Now, if heir is dead, who's next in line? That's Onan, right? He used to be second in line as the middle child, but now that the oldest brother is dead, now Onan, now he is first in line and he gets first dibs on the family inheritance. And so if Onan has sexual relations with uh, Tamar and if she produces offspring like a son, that offspring will be the new heir and Onan's family inheritance will be reduced. So Onan, he doesn't wanna do this because he's greedy and he knows, man, if, if I give her a kid, he's gonna get the majority of the family inheritance. And what about me? What about my family? 
And so he wanted the family inheritance at the expense of Tamar's well-being, protection, and care. And I want you to imagine the fear, maybe betrayal that Tamar might have experienced. Like, hey, like, doesn't the law say that my brother-in-law is supposed to provide for me, provide an offspring? But, you know, Onan, he's not taking care of me. He's not um, providing an offspring for me. And so Tamar experienced this fear, this, this betrayal. And so the Israelite system was built to protect widows, but evil men like Onan, they found a loophole. So that's why God intervenes and puts Onan to death, um, which he <laughs> deserves in the eyes of God. And so this strikes fear in Judah's eyes. Remember, he started off having three sons, and now he had had to bury Er and Onan. And so he's afraid. And so let's see what he says next to Tamar in verses 11. Then Judah said to Tamar, his daughter-in-law, remain a widow in your father's house till Shelah, my son, grows up. For he feared that he would die like his brothers. So Tamar went and remained in her father's house. So Judah, he's afraid. Um, he knows that he's obligated to provide for um, Tamar, but he knows that he's not sure if Tamar is the cause of her first two sons' death. So what he says is, go back to your father's house. Um, you know, my other son, Shayla, he's not old enough. Come back when he's old enough and I'll give him to you. Um, and so he kind of sends, he kind of sends uh, Tamar uh, packing. Just go back to your, to your home. Um, I got you. I'll help you out. Um, but I, just not right now. But deep down, we know that Judah is terrified. Uh, he feared that Shelah, his last son, would die like his brothers. So he basically says and lies to um, Tamar. Go home and come back. But deep down, we know that, um, uh, that Judah, he has his fingers crossed, <laughs> really. Um, he, he says one thing, but deep down, he, he doesn't really mean it. He doesn't really want to protect um, Tamar, who at this point is a widow. And so this is cruel, this is unfair, and this is unjust treatment uh, to Tamar. And so this is when Tamar takes things into her own hands. Her father-in-law is not helping her. Um, the, the law, which is supposed to help her, but is being um, uh, people are finding loopholes around the system. This is when Tamar takes things into her own hands. So let's see what she does, verses 12 to 14. In the course of time, the wife of Judah, Shua's daughter, died. When Judah was comforted, he went up to Timnah to his sheep shearers, he and his friend Hira, the Adulamite. And when Tamar was told, your father-in-law is going up to Timnah to shear his sheep, she took off her widow's garments and covered herself with a veil, wrapping herself up, and sat at the entrance to Enaim, which is on the road to Timnah. For she saw that Shelah was grown up, and she had not been given to him in marriage. So at this point, Shelah is of age. He is of age to marry her, but Tamar realizes, hey, how come Judah isn't giving Shelah to me? He told me to go back home and to come back when Shelah was of age, but nothing's happening. He's not keeping up his end of the promise. So Tamar, who is now vulnerable, she's a widow. Um, she knows this is her only chance. And so she takes things into her own hands. And so while um, 
Judah is away, um, sheep shearing. This is actually a festive time. Um, commentators say this is when sexual temptation is heightened uh, during this festival, a festive time. And so Tamar knows this is um, this is her chance. And if you rem- uh, notice in the verse that we read, Judah's own wife died. Um, so now Judah is a widow as well. So Tamar knows that he will be vulnerable. He is vulnerable to temptation. So she takes off her widow's garment and she puts on a veil, wraps herself up and sits at the town entrance. And so she put herself here because there'd be a lot of traffic people going in and out of town. And so by putting herself, stationing herself outside the town entrance, she knows that this will signal um, to others that she is disguising herself as a prostitute. Um, And she wants to, uh, she wants to trick Judah. And so let's see what Judah does. Let's look at verses 15 to 19. When Judah saw her, he thought she was a prostitute for she had covered her face. He turned to her at the roadside and said, come, let me come into you. For he did not know that she was his daughter-in-law. She said, what will you give me that you may come into me? He answered, I will send you a young goat from the flock. And she said, if you give me a pledge until you send it. He said, what pledge shall I give to you? She replied, your signet and your cord and your staff that is in your hand. So he gave them to her and went into her and she conceived by him. Then she arose and went away, taking off her veil. She put on the garments of her widow, her widowhood. So let's stop there. So Tamar has to stoop to such a low level to play the role of a prostitute, to have sexual relations with her father-in-law, Judah, all this just to protect herself. And so Judah here, this reveals again, uh, Judah's ignorance. She sees uh, Tamar, but he doesn't know that it's uh, his daughter-in-law. And up to this point, the narrator really tries to portray Judah as someone who is ignorant. Someone who really doesn't have any idea what's going on. Remember earlier in this passage, Judah doesn't know that his sons are evil. He thinks Tamar is the cause of their death. But really, the the narrator says it's the son's evilness which causes them to be put to death. And again, in this instance, he doesn't recognize that this is his own daughter-in-law. So Judah is portrayed as being very ignorant. Um, and in his, in his lust and in his passion, he wants to lay with her, and he offers a goat as a payment, which was a very handsome payment back then. Um, and, you know, uh, Tamar could have said, okay, that's good enough. But she knew she only had one shot. Tamar knew that she couldn't afford any risk. There is no room for error. And so she demands a pledge, which is almost like a proof by Denny, almost like a down payment, um, knowing that Judah would have to follow through. It's like if you rent something and they say, oh, uh, give me your driver's license so I know you won't just um, run off with whatever you rented. And so in a way, that's what uh, Tamar is trying to secure. And what Tamar wants is in his hand, which is the signet, the cord, and the staff. Um, a signet was a seal that people would wear. You could um, imprint it on things. They would give an authoritative imprint. Uh, it's just like a signature. You just stamp something with the ring. It was basically your signature. Um, so it only belonged to you. 
Uh, the cord, it was a flexible material for tying, so it could have held uh, the signet ring maybe around the neck or for another purpose. And the staff was just a, a walking cane, so maybe um, to walk around. And um, a lot of staffs, they were inscripted with their name, so uh, maybe Judah's name or something that identified him was on uh, this staff. And so they do the deed, and Tamar, all she can do is hope that this act, as shameful as it is, will bring her an offspring to carry on a family, the fa her family name. And this was a highly risky mission because a sexual venture between a father-in-law and a, and a daughter-in-law was deemed incest, according to the law in Leviticus 18 and 15. But given the circumstances, what, could, uh, what else could Tamar do? What other option did she have? So this is what Tamar resorts to. And so sometime later, uh, Judah sends the young goat as payment to Tamar, but she is nowhere to be found. So let's see what happens uh, in verses 20 to 23. When Judah sent the young goat by his friend, the Dulamite, to take back the pledge from the woman's hand, he did not find her. And he asked the men of the place, where is the cult prostitute who was at Enaim at the roadside? And he said, no cult prostitute has been here. So he returned to Judah and said, I have not found her. Also, the men of the place said, no cult prostitute has been here. And Judah replied, let her keep the things as her own, or we shall be laughed at. You see, I sent this young goat, and you did not find her. So we have uh, here his Judah's Canaanite friend who tries to look for Tamar to pay the goat, uh, but can't find her. And so Judah basically says, you know what, let's just forget it. If I try to push too hard, people will find out that I was tricked by a prostitute. I'd be laughed out of town. Um, let's just let her keep her stuff, keep the signet ring, keep the, the staff, um, keep the cord. I, I don't need it. Let's just forget about it. She keeps her things. We move on with life. And so it looks like Judah can forget about this sexual venture and just move on until something comes up. So let's read on verses 24 and see what happens. So about three months later, Judah was told, Tamar, your daughter-in-law has been immoral. Moreover, she is pregnant by immorality. And Judah said, bring her out and let her be bur burned. So Judah is told that Tamar is pregnant and anger burns within him. He's angry because if she's pregnant by a man outside of uh, his family, that shows that uh, she betrayed his family name, that she brought uh, dishonor and embarrassment. And so Tamar, as the daughter-in-law, has um, disrespected the family name if she did get pregnant by an outside man. And so she was still obligated to marry in Judah's family. Um, so this is why Judah is so angry, and he demands that she is burned. He is angry. And so this uh, picture captures, I think, some of that um, because in his, in his mind, he sees his daughter-in-law, Tamar, who's engaged in fornication, adultery, and sexual immorality. And so Leviticus 20.14 says that burning uh, is reserved for people, for men who sleep with the woman and her mother. And so for someone to be burned, it means that they had to have committed a most heinous and evil crime. 
Usually the more common punishment, you would just stone somebody. To burn someone is a much higher degree of punishment. And so it's almost like a symbol as you burn the body, you see it decay into ash. It's like purging the evil from, uh, from the community. And so it's in this very moment as Tamar is being brought out, as she's about to be burned, she pulls out the trap card, the ace up her sleeve. Let's look at verses 25 and 26. As she was being brought out, Tamar, she sent word to her father-in-law, by the man to whom these belong, I am pregnant. And she said, please identify who these are, the signet and the cord and the staff. Then Judah identified them and said, she is more righteous than I, since I did not give her to my son, Shelah, and he did not know her again. Man. <laughs> The narrator is so excellent in describing the scene. As she is about to be burned, she pulls out the ace up her sleeve and throws out the cord, the staff, and the ring. And she doesn't even say uh, to Judah, Judah, you're the one who got me pregnant. She allows Judah to do the math. She says, I am pregnant by the man to whom these items belong. And this is like the most epic checkmate in all of history. Well, not really, but it's a, a moment where she just owns Judah. And this is a Tamar who puts him really in his place. And you can really imagine what Judah is thinking before, before this point, before it clicks in his head. Maybe he's thinking, okay, I don't care what those items are. I don't know who, I don't care who got you pregnant. You are guilty. And then when he sees the, the items, his heart begins to sink. Oh boy, that's my signets. That's my cord. That's my staff. In a single moment, he realizes what he's done to her by telling her to go home to her father's house to remain a widow without any intention to provide a husband for her. Judah is essentially holding her hostage until she dies, unprotected, not cared for. And it all hits him in this moment. Judah, at this point, is crushed. And I would argue this is rock bottom for Judah. He sees the consequences of his actions. He sees, I was about to burn my own daughter-in-law for her evil crimes. But it was actually me who did the greater evil against her. I was the one who paid her as a prostitute. She stands here before me with child because of me. And this is why Judah says, she is more righteous than I, since I did not give her to my son, Shayla. Now, it doesn't mean that Tamar's actions of deception was, uh, was good and God honoring and approvable and um, um, something that we should uh, honor. That, that's not it at all, but it does show that her motivation is consistent with the marriage obligation that she agreed to. Judah was obligated to provide a husband for Tamar so that she could produce the offspring, but he intentionally refused, stringing her along a wild goose chase with no reward at the end. And so this forces Tamar to do nothing else but to 
take up prostitution and deceive her own father-in-law. Yes, her actions are unrighteous, but the greater evil was Judah's actions. And that's why he says she is more righteous than I. She had to put her own life at risk just to protect herself. And the narrator says that Judah did not know her again. And that doesn't mean he abandoned her. That just means he did not have sexual relations with her again, which is a sign of repentance. Genesis 38 showcases the very worst of Judah. Judah crashes and burns badly. In this moment, he is broken. And it's only, it's to lay the foundation for what will happen next. And I want to argue that it's in this moment that there is a seed of new birth in Judah. He will begin to slowly change. I mentioned earlier that the narrator is trying to portray Judah as ignorant. Ignorant that his sons were evil, which led to their death, and ignorant that Tamar was disguised as a prostitute. But soon later on in the Joseph story, we're going to see that Judah becomes a man who has the right perspective. Judah becomes a man who can lead his brothers um, to, uh, to Joseph, who can convince and persuade his dad to let Benjamin uh, go to Egypt. Judah will become a new man later on, but now we just see him at rock bottom. So I'm getting a little bit ahead of myself, but I want to just give a little preview of this character arc of Judah. Now, what happens to uh, pregnant Tamar? Um, there's something really interesting that happens. And so uh, let's read the last couple of verses, verses 27 to 30 uh, in Genesis 38. And let's see what happens with Tamar. When the time of her labor came, there were twins in her womb. And when she was in labor, one put out a hand, and the midwife took and tied a scarlet thread on his hand, saying, This one came out first. But as he drew back his hand, behold, his brother came out. And she said, What a breach you have made for yourself. Therefore, his name was called Perez. Afterward, his brother came out with a scarlet thread on his hand, and his name was called Zerah. So Tamar actually has twins, and this should remind us of Jacob and Esau. They were also twins in the womb. And so Tamar also gives birth to twins, and just like Jacob and Esau, um, Perez and Zerah, there is rivalry. They are struggling who will get out first, and it looks like one baby has the hand out, but, and so the midwife ties a scarlet thread to mark that he's a firstborn, and that's what the scarlet thread does, but it's actually the other twin who reaches his hand out, and he actually exits first, becoming the first baby um, to exit the womb. And this is highly unusual. It's why the midwife says, what a breach you have made for yourself. And so Perez is his name, while the other brother is Zerah. Now you might be thinking, what's the big deal? Um, okay, she has twins. Oh, so what? Let's take a step back. And I think this is the part where it gets crazy. Um, look at the whole family of Abraham. Abraham is the father of Isaac. Isaac, the father of Jacob. Jacob, the father of Judah, which is the character. And Judah is now the father of Perez through prostitution with Tamar. With, uh, Tamar. But who does Perez lead to? Perez eventually leads to Boaz, 
the father of Obed, Obed, the father of Jesse, Jesse, the father of David, the king, which generations later leads to a carpenter named Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called the Christ. You can confirm that and fact check that in Matthew chapter one. Think about that. Are you kidding that Perez, the son of a prostituted couple, Judah and Tamar, brings forth the Messiah? Jesus Christ, the person that we put our, our faith in, comes from this broken, wicked, and twisted family? When I read this passage this week, I was just absolutely moved. I'm like, wow, God chose this family to bring about the Messiah. God doesn't just use perfect people or perfect families. There are no perfect people. There are no perfect families. God works in any circumstance, even evil circumstances, to bring about his good. And just like last week, this week as well, we see that no amount of evil can thwart the will of God for redemption. The Savior of the world Jesus Christ of Nazareth came from this family that was marred by deception, by greed, by prostitution. And this family tree, I just thought this was so helpful. Oh, that's a picture of them. I forgot to show that. Um, I'll move on. To <laughs> this family tree shows it all. Um, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. And we see uh, Judah and Tamar right there. All right. Judah and Tamar have Perez. And Zara, but it's through Perez that this family line just keeps going down, just follow the, the circle, all these people, and eventually leads to Mary and ultimately Jesus. Man, that's like that was like a, a mind shock for me just when I really came to grips with the God who is his thoughts are just way beyond our thoughts. And it just makes me so grateful, like, wow, God just uses broken families. And so even, even if you take even a bigger step back, just look at human history as a whole. God created the world and everything in it to be good. But sin did enter the world through one man, Adam. Uh, in Romans 5, we see that. And so the major sins today uh, in the Judah and Tamar story, greed, deception, prostitution, uh, but also expands to the rest of the family. Um, like with Joseph, how they mistreated him, the favoritism of Rachel by Jacob. We see sin in the Bible, but we also see it nowadays. I mentioned earlier the mass shooting in Indianapolis earlier. You know, uh, and then even the shooting in Atlanta, which feels like a long time ago, but really it was only a couple of weeks ago. Think about just this past two years, there's been so much death, so much evil so much tragedy. There's so much wrong in the world around us. And it begs the question, can there be hope when there's so much death around us? But just as sin entered into the world through one man, Adam, so eternal life is offered through the one man, Jesus Christ, a descendant of Perez. This man, Jesus, would be the savior of the world. In the face of evil, as we saw in the Judah and Tamar story, God, God's will cannot be stopped. 
It tried to be stopped. Judah tried to burn Tamar, but in the final seconds, her life is preserved, which ultimately preserves the life of the eventual Messiah Jesus. Like, isn't that just incredible? But the Messiah Jesus right now is seated at the right hand of God, and he sees the sin on earth. He sees the shootings, the murders, the brokenness in our families, and he offers redemption. He offers salvation in the face of death. He offers eternal life for those who place his faith in him. So students, let me ask you, have you truly at the bottom of your heart placed your faith in Jesus? It's a simple question. I probably said this a lot of times, so this probably isn't my first time saying this to you, but I say it every week because I really believe that in a youth group, I don't assume everyone is saved. In fact, my assumption is that only a small percentage, if that, is saved, like genuinely saved. I think a lot of you guys are consistent and go to church, but I think it's an entirely different thing to simply attend church and to truly commit your life to Jesus in faith. And so I want to ask you again, have you truly in your heart placed your faith in Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins? The destiny of your soul truly does hang on this question. As we know, the entire Bible is an account God's mission to save sinners. Judah and Tamar, that's just one small puzzle piece in the grander picture. <clears throat> so as we conclude this narrative, what's the theological insight? What are we supposed to take away from this? And this will be very similar to last week, but what I want us to take away from this, the theological insight, is that we see a God who can bring redemption from corruption. We see a God who can bring redemption from corruption. This God can bring hope from darkness, beauty from ashes, salvation from sin. This is a God who brings redemption from corruption. Look at all the characters today. We have Judah, Tamar, Er, um, Onan. There is no innocent party. Everybody is guilty. Er and Onan were selfish and evil. Judah was ignorant and a lustful little guy. Tamar was disgraceful in her deception and disguising herself as a prostitute. Nobody is perfect, but this is the God we worship. Remember, God is the main character in the Bible, and he brings about redemption from corruption. But I think here's the kicker. Sometimes his ways are hidden. God does redeem our brokenness, but sometimes his ways are hidden. There is nobody there when Tamar gave birth to Perez and Zerah. No one was there to say, hey, uh, Tamar, you know, in a couple of generations and hundreds of years, your descendant is going to be Jesus Christ, the Savior of the world. Nobody told Tamar that. She would die without knowing the role she played in salvation history. And I think that also reveals a bit about how God works. God is working, but sometimes his ways are hidden. And sometimes it's very difficult, if not impossible, for us to make sense of that. And sometimes I think for us, I think we want God to work in more obvious ways. God, get me into a good college. I want to see that acceptance letter. God, get me good grades. I need to see 
a certain GPA on my report. God, get me a good AP score. AP exams are coming up. God, get me a boyfriend and girlfriend. God, give me friends. God, give me a family that cares about me. God, give me a social life. But a lot of times, God doesn't work so obviously or so swiftly. His work is hidden. Doesn't mean he's not there, but he is, his work sometimes is hidden from my perspective. So my big idea today is this. Even in evil circumstances, God is at work in redemptive yet hidden ways. Trust his plans and his heart. In this entire narrative, we don't really see a lot of um, obvious redemption. Yes, we know Perez is the eventual, um, Perez will eventually lead to Jesus, but in this narrative, there's not a lot of um, feel-good moments. There's not a lot of victory. As the reader, we have the all-knowing perspective that in the end, Jesus will arrive. But back then, they didn't have that. So as we conclude today's sermon, we saw that this was a very disturbing and tragic account. God, where are you? Don't you see Tamar? Why didn't you help her? But we see that God allows a temporary evil in order to bring about a greater good. And Perez will eventually bring about the seed of the Messiah. So when you and I, when we encounter evil, we have to remember that God it all is always at work to do good, even if his work is hidden. So this week, go out, take heart, and trust in the Lord with everything who uses evil to bring about good. Let me pray for us. Lord, I, I thank you so much that you are a God who can use a circumstance like Judah and Tamar and bring about your son, Jesus Christ. There really, no, there really were no moral victories in today's story. There's a deception, prostitution, greed. But Lord, even in the face of evil, you bring about your son, Jesus. From the ashes, Lord, you bring about beauty. And I pray for these students who really just might be struggling, um, maybe in their own lives, in their own way. Maybe they have their own evil they encounter. God, I pray that they would know your good heart. That they would know that you have a higher purpose, a redemptive plan for humanity. Help us to trust your good heart, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.